Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your ear lover, your friend, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, delighted as always to be with you as we stumble through Frankenstein. Now... I thought I'd start today in an unusual way, because last time that we spoke, I mentioned that I wanted to understand a little bit more about Percy Bysshe Shelley and Lord Byron, and immediately I have run into a problem, and the problem is this. My dear wife Martha, whom you have met in season one and will probably become reacquainted with in season two tells me that Bish is actually pronounced Bissy. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? It's B-Y-S-S-H-E. That's Bissy? She's like, yes, everybody knows it's Bissy. I'm like, I didn't know that, and it doesn't seem right. So I went to my research machine, and I'm getting contradictory information. Like when you go to uh, on one of these websites where it just pronounces shit, it does pronounce it like Bish. Bish. But, and keep in mind, nobody pronounces it like I'd pronounce it, which is haughty. The haughty bish. They just say bish, bish. Um, But I then did a little further research and found like an actual, like, I don't know, PhD or something. Some English professor. Some man, some literary mansplainer who was going over the romantic poets and he pronounced it Percy Bissy Shelley. This week we're looking at some poetry from Percy Bissy Shelley, and the selections I think are going to help build this sense of kind of continuity and communication. Between so individual I don't know if that means there are two pronunciations 
or if it's just become accepted that Bissy is the correct pronunciation. But I did some etymology research into the origin of the name Bish or Bissy. And it turns out it's an English, an old English word uh, for a surname that relates to uh, somebody living near, get this, a bush. So it's similar to the last name Bush, as we, we, have, we, we have some bushes in our history, recent history. None of them very good. I'm not casting aspersions on bushes in general, neither the name nor the type of vegetation, I'm just saying. So it makes sense then that you would pronounce it bish, because bish sounds like bush, and bicey does not sound like bush at all. But perhaps through the generations, their family name came to be bicey, not bish. And that's disappointing. That is so disappointing to me, because how fun is it to say bish? Incredibly fun. My character, Peepers, from another period, would like nothing more than to say... Master Bish, bring the water cooler over. We have such a thing in this world as order. The strong rule the weak. If there were only strong, overpopulation ensues. Soon there will be one billion people on this planet. Do you think our planet can afford one billion people? Of course not. The planet itself will sink down into space and explode. So I'm torn because I want to keep saying Bish, but it seems like it is pronounced Bicey, and that's disappointing. All right, that's number one. Second thing is, I thought, well, that's unusual because I did a little research beforehand. I never research anything. I just open my mouth, words fall out, and I post them as if I know something when you and I ultimately know I do not. I don't know anything. That's part of the journey, right? That's part of the fun is we're kind of learning as we go. And so I'm torn because sometimes I want to do a little research, but then I feel like, oh, is that cheating? But I think if it's not giving spoilers away for the book, then it's not cheating. Because the main reason not to research is so that I don't learn anything about the book, not that I don't learn anything. I am not impervious to knowledge. I am, after all, a sponge. Oh, how I love to absorb the world. So I thought, as I indicated last time, well, let me start with a poem by Percy Bissy Shelley. And I haven't read the poem yet. I will be reading it out loud for the first time. Um... So I went to poets.org, and they've got a whole list of poems by Percy Bissy Shelley, and one, interestingly, published in the same year as Frankenstein from 1818. This is entitled On the Medusa of Leonardo da Vinci in the Florentine Gallery. Okay? I have not read the poem yet. I have no idea what it's about, but I did look up the Medusa by Leonardo da Vinci, having never heard of it. Well, it turns out, listeners, I was right never to have heard of it because it's missing. It is a painting that is attributed to Leonardo da Vinci sometime in the 15th century, one of his early works, and it is mentioned in the 1568 biography of him, and it's described. It is a painting that did exist, but it's gone. So Percy Bissy Shelley could not have seen it, although there was a painting in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence in 1782 that does not appear to have been the same painting. So this is, seems to be the painting that Shelley is describing, and I'll just quote from Luigi Lanzi, 
who documented the painting, 1782, blah, blah, blah. Finally, on the following wall, one sees the head of Medusa with serpents so realistic that it makes credible what we, re- what we read of Vinici, which I think is Da Vinci, wherein a painting produced like this in which one saw fear and fled, something that does no less honor to modern painting than did the grapes of Zeuxix, I don't know what that is, or the horses at Palace, I don't know what that is. Nevertheless, the work lacks the final finish, as do the works of Vinci for the most part. Okay, so he's saying that's not Da Vinci. So here is a description of the actual Da Vinci painting, although it is clear now that Shelley never saw it, but hey, we're here. You came all this way. Why don't you pull over and look at the sights, for God's sake? So we're looking at the sights. So then, and this is described by Giorgio Vasari in his 1568 biographical book, Vita de Leonardo, which translates as Vitamins of Leonardo. This describes the different vitamins that Leonardo took. Then having prepared it for painting, he began to think what he could paint upon it that would frighten everyone that saw it, having the effect of the head of Medusa. Okay, and then he describes the painting, and it sounds horrible. There were uh, fire and smoke and blah, 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 blah. Okay, the point is, in this time, when Percy is writing this poem, 1818, his wife, Mary Shelley, is also engaged in some sort of horror writing, right? So they're both interested in the horror, the horror, to quote Marlon Brando. So now I'm opening the poem and let's see what it says. I'm hoping it's not very long. Okay, it's not terribly long. But let's see if we get bored. And then there's a portrait of Percy Bissy Shelley Bish, who, uh, you know, very handsome young man, controversial, apparently due to his views on religion, atheism, socialism, and free love. Okay, so remember I said that there was something with Lord Byron, their bosom buddies, and Walton and Frankenstein, bosom buddies. Again, I'm not going to the place of homoeroticism. I don't know if Shelley and Byron had anything. Maybe that's well known, because I don't know anything about these guys. I will do further research into that in a moment, not, but not on this podcast. Instead, I'm going to start with this poem by Percy B.C. Shelley. <sighs> if, this is, if this is overwrought, I apologize. It has no bearing on the story, except it does. And so, you know, we're taking a detour. Does that suck? Maybe. I don't know. But what am I supposed to do? Not take the detour? We came. We came here. There's a, there's a sign that said scenic drive. This way, we're taking the scenic drive. If you don't like it, lump it on the Medusa of Leonardo da Vinci in the Florentine Gallery. Oh, Shelley died young. So he died in 1822. Wait, what? I mean, I guess I knew he died young, but he's only got another four years to live after this? All right. It lieth, gazing on the midnight sky, upon the cloudy mountain peak supine. Below, far lands are seen tremblingly. Its horror and its beauty are divine. Upon its lips and eyelids seem to lie loveliness like a shadow from which shrine, fiery and lurid, struggling underneath the agonies of anguish and of death. Okay, there's more, but I just want to, I just want to, 
Okay, so it lieth gazing on the midnight sky upon the cloudy mountain peak supine. Now, the Medusa that he is describing, you actually can see. I think it is known. And it is Medusa's head lying on the ground, as described, looking up at the midnight sky, as described, her head full of snakes and all the rest of it. Okay. But what's interesting from our point of view is its horror and its beauty are divine. So it is the combination of horror and beauty which interests me and therefore interests you. Look, I don't want to put words in your mouth. That's not what I'm about. I'm not about putting words in your mouth, but that's what interests you. Next uh, stanza. Yet it is less the horror than the grace which turns the gazer's spirit into stone, whereon the lineaments of that dead face are graven till the characters be grown. Into itself, and thought no more can trace, tis the melodious hue of beauty thrown, athwart the darkness and the glare of pain, which humanize and harmonize the strain. Okay, so I'm having trouble with the rhyming scheme here, right? Because it goes grace, face, trace, pain, strain, every other line, then stone, groaned, thrown, every other line. Uh, okay, so the first six lines are every other line, the last two are a couplet, but in the first stanza, and this is every other line, sky tremblingly lie, and then supine divine shrine, sky trembling lie. I wonder if that rhymes in his accent. And then, and then, the, and then the final couplet would be underneath and death. So if it were to rhyme, you would say fiery and lurid, struggling underneath the agonies of anguish and of death. Okay. If he can say death as death, I can say bissy as bish. Like, don't we have rules here? Don't we have fucking rules, Percy? You can't just call death death. You can't do that. Dick, no wonder you died young. And from its head as from one body grow, as, and then in parentheses, I don't know if something screwed up here, but it, there's a missing word. As grass out of a watery rock, hairs which are vipers, and they curl and flow, and their long tangles in each other lock, and with unending involutions shew their mailed radiance as it were to mock the torture and the death within, and saw the solid air with many a ragged jaw. And from a stone beside, a poisonous eft peeps idly into those, into those Gorgonian eyes, whilst in the air a ghastly bat bereft of sense has flitted with a mad surprise. Out of the cave this hideous light had cleft, and he comes hastening like a moth that hides after a taper and the midnight sky flares a light more dread than obscurity. <gasps> Obscure! 
Okay, so again, I'm, look, I'm just getting hung up on the rhyme and not even the meaning. Eft, bereft, cleft, right? Eyes, surprise, highs, and then you go midnight sky and obscuritai. The fuck, Percy? The fuck? There's just one more stanza. I might as well read it. I'm bored with the poem. You probably are too, but it's interesting, and we'll talk about why it's interesting in a second. Tis the tempestuous loveliness of terror, for from the serpents gleams a brazen glare, kindled by that inextricable error, which makes a thrilling vapor of the air become a missing word, an ever-shifting mirror of all the beauty and the terror there, a woman's countenance with serpent locks gazing in death on heaven from those wet rocks. So finally, you get the last couplet, right? Thank you. Thank you, Percy. Oh my God, thank you for just like getting the last rhyming scheme, right? Dick. A woman's countenance with serpent locks. Okay, so her face, she's got snake head, gazing in death on heaven from those wet rocks. Okay, so for our purposes, here's what I think is interesting. At the same time that Mary Shelley is writing Frankenstein, Percy Bissy Shelley is writing this, all right? And they deal with similar themes. Chief among them... The idea of horror and beauty as being divine, right? That's what's so interesting here. Returning again to the idea of the daemon. How do you like them apples? Because now I'm referencing Matt Damon, who really is a being between heaven and earth. Isn't he closer to heaven, I think? It's about horror and beauty, right? Frankenstein, so far as we know to this point, has been attempting to create from clay from nothingness, a somethingness. He has been attempting to supersede nature and to create something divine. Uh, divinity has its own beauty, of course, but what do you create instead? Horror. The horror. So that's the whole thing. Like, husband and wife here, like they're thinking up the same creepy shit. Which makes you go, all right, well, what's going on in their relationship? that they're obsessed with horror and beauty together. Is that just like they're on the same kind of literary and thematic journey of horror and beauty? Is there something culturally that's going on in the Romantic period that infuses the spirit with this dichotomy? Like, what's going on? A woman's countenance with serpent locks gazing in death on heaven from those wet rocks. So uh, Medusa, headless, I mean, not headless, bodiless, her head looking up at heaven from the earth, this slimy, slithery earth, looking up at heaven in death. Now, does she see heaven? Meaning like, has she in some respect entered it? Or is she forever blocked from it, but can see it? Or does she see nothing? Are her eyes dead? I don't know. I'm not going to linger too much on this poem because, as I said, I'm already bored with it. Let's go to Frankenstein. But I did think it 
was worth looking at a poem from Percy Shelley. And again, I had no idea what I was going to find. I think it's creepy and cool that the one that I found from the same data publication is about horror and beauty on the Medusa of Leonardo da Vinci in the Florentine Gallery, which was not by Leonardo da Vinci, but whatevs. He didn't know. All right, let's take a little break, and then we'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to the book. And this is good. All right, here we go. August 19th, 17 dash. Let's just see how much time has elapsed from two weeks. The last letter was August 5th. This is August 19th. And if you remember from last time, the stranger Frankenstein was about to pour out his heart to dear old Walton and tell him why he should abandon this voyage, why he should not let dreams of fame and glory overtake him because they will break him as they have broken Frankenstein. Yesterday, the stranger said to me, you may easily perceive Captain Walton that I have suffered great and unparalleled misfortunes. I had determined at one time that the memory of these evils should die with me, but you have won me to alter my determination. You seek for knowledge and wisdom as I once did, and I ardently hope that the gratification of your wishes may not be a serpent to sting you. I mean, we just read Percy's poem about serpents coming out of her head, and here we have a serpent stinging. I mean, what a catacomb we have uncovered here. What a labyrinth. A literary labyrinth. Now I can't wait to look at Lord Byron, which we'll do in a further ep- another episode. I'm not going to look at Lord Byron today. 
but we're going to discover more about Shelley and Byron and the other Shelley all together. This crazy literary menage a trois. I'm very excited, and so are you. Again, I'm not telling you how to feel, but you're very excited. I do not know that the relation of my disasters will be useful to you. Yet, when I reflect that you are pursuing the same course, exposing yourself to the same dangers which have rendered me what I am, I imagine that you may deduce an apt moral from my tale, one that may direct you, if you succeed in your undertaking, and console you in case of failure. Prepare to hear of occurrences which are usually deemed marvelous. And I think in this, I think marvelous in this sense is not meant to be uh, the way you, we use it, like a good thing, but instead of marvels, like otherworldly. Were we among the tamer scenes of nature, I might fear to encounter your unbelief, perhaps your ridicule. But many things will appear possible in these wild and mysterious regions, which would provoke the laughter of those unacquainted with the ever-varied powers of nature. Nor can I doubt but that my tale conveys in its series internal evidence of the truth of the events of which it is composed. And then he stops speaking, and then Walton says, You may easily imagine that I was much gratified by the offered communication, yet I could not endure that he should renew his grief by a recital of his misfortunes. I felt the greatest eagerness to hear the promised narrative, partly from curiosity, and partly from a strong desire to ameliorate his fate, if it were in my power, I expressed these feelings in my answer. I thank you, he replied, for your sympathy, but it is useless. My fate is nearly fulfilled. I wait but for one event, and then I shall repose in peace. I understand your feeling, continued he, perceiving that I wished to interrupt him. But you are mistaken, my friend. If thus you will allow me to name you, nothing can alter my... Oh, my friend, if thus you will allow me to name you. Meaning they haven't called each other friend before, which is sort of sweet and endearing, isn't it? I mean, Walton, we know, has written this total mash letter to his sister, Margaret Saville in London Town about his new crush, this wonderful stranger that they picked up on the ice, and his brother, and how he's his brother, and he understands everything about him, and oh God, the way he speaks is so cool, and blah, 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 blah. Um, but Frankenstein has yet to call him his friend, apparently. Maybe they, I mean, it's such a formal time, obviously, more formal than our own. And so the word friend, I guess, is freighted with greater meaning than maybe we. <clears throat> ascribe to it, but hey, great. Um, but you are mistaken, my friend. If thus you will allow me to name you, nothing can alter my destiny. Listen to my history, and you will perceive how irrevocably it is determined. So, it's an interesting thing. I mean, all of Walton, all of Walton's backstory has led to him finding Frankenstein there on the ice, right? And then Frankenstein is about to tell him his story. You know, it's been pages and pages and pages of letters 
to Maggie. And now we have Frankenstein. He's about to unburden himself. And it makes me think, well, why don't we just start with Frankenstein? Why didn't we start the whole book with Frankenstein? Why don't we, why, why, like, why do we need Walton? I mean, I guess we'll find out. All right. He then told me that he would commence his narrative the next day when I should be at leisure. This promise drew from me the warmest thanks. I have resolved every night when I am not imperatively occupied by my duties to record as nearly as possible in his own words what he has related during the day. If I should be engaged, I will at least make notes. This manuscript will doubtless afford you the greatest pleasure, but to me, who know him and who hear it from his own lips, with what interest and sympathy shall I read it in some future day? Even now, as I commence my task, his full-toned voice swells in my ears. His lustrous eyes dwell on me with all their melancholy sweetness. I see his thin hand raised in animation, while the liniments of his face... Wait a second! The fuck? The fuck? We just read in Percy! Yet it is, this is from Percy, shall we? B.C. Yet it is less the horror than the grace which turns the gazer's spirit into stone, whereon the liniments of that dead face are graven till the characters be known. And it's a, it's a kind of, um, it's a critical four lines, quatrain. Would you call it a quatrain? I don't fucking know, but fuck it, quatrain. Yet it is less the horror than the grace which turns the gazer's spirit into stone, right? It's not the horror that fucks you up, that turns your spirit into stone. It's the grace, right? She's got both. She's got beauty and she's got horror. And Percy is saying, it's the beauty that destroys you. Why? I'm not sure I understand that. Okay, and then, where on the liniments of that dead face? Now, I, I'm just assuming liniments means lines, like the lines on, on her face. Liniments, I'm just looking at my uh, research machine. A distinctive feature or characteristic. Okay, so it's not the lines, it's your features, all right? It's, it's, it's everything. It's your mise-en-scene of your face. So the character of that dead face are graven till the characters be grown into itself and thought no more can trace. All right, I'm not going to keep going on the poem, but how queer that, I mean, we're finding these echoes of each other. The liniments of his face are irradiated by the soul within. I see his thin hand raised in animation while the liniments of his face are irradiated by the soul within, right? It's the gazer's spirit into stone, the spirit, the irradiated soul, the same thing. I mean, I know they live together. I know they're husband and wife, but it seems strange that they would come up with 
the same essentially language, or maybe not. I don't know. I mean, they're literary people. They sit around and gab all day about literary shit. Nevertheless, I find this an exciting discovery. And weird that like the one poem by Shelley I happen to pick echoes the one letter that I happen to read. I mean, is it spooky? Yeah, it's fucking spooky, you guys. It's a spooky story. The poem is spooky. The coincidence here is spooky. Everything's spooky. And to top it all off, it's almost Halloween when people dress like Frankenstein or more correctly, the creature. But they call it Frankenstein. Shit is coming full circle, y'all. And if you don't feel the hairs on your neck stand up on end like something's coming to get you, then I don't know what to tell you because something's coming to get you. Strange and harrowing must be his story. Frightful the storm which embraced the gallant vessel on its course and wrecked it. Thus. And that is the end of the letter. And then my eye can't help but see on the next page, right? It begins chapter one. So, all of this has been an introduction. All of this has led to Frankenstein about to tell his tale. And what that tale holds, nobody knows. Not even Walton, who has yet to relate a single word of it. Only Frankenstein and the creature have any sense of what this spooky and harrowing tale is about to be. I am agog at everything that we have experienced this episode. Yes, it started with a somewhat boring poem by Percy Bissy Bish Shelley, but in that poem we have heard echoes and reflections of themes and in fact exact words from Mary Shelley. These two are peas in a pod. God, we're having fun. God, we're having fun. The hairs on the back of your neck have been standing up for minutes now as we contemplate all of this horror, the horror, all of this excitement, the excitement. Nobody, I mean, that's not a quote from anything. Because really, if you're going to say the excitement, you should say it like this. The excitement! And of course, I did jazz hands. So, we have come all this way. We have come right to the edge of the North Pole. Essentially, the moon. Where we found another person struggling to breathe. We saved him. And now he's going to tell us how he came to be on the moon. On the next spooky, harrowing episode of Frankenstein. But until then, I wish you... Adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only 
will you be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein way before the general public hears them, but you'll also get bonus episodes, uh, writings, musings, jokes aplenty, and if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi-regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you.